You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Dan Baer's interview with the director for In the Heights, John M. Chu, and Will Mavity's interview with the sound team, Louis Goldstein and John Marquise. We hope you enjoy this behind-the-scenes look at In the Heights. Let me just listen to my block. It's quiet. Usually the one train's up there screeching. There's so much stuff going on. Just got me thinking about all the people I care about the most. There's a breeze off the Hudson. And just when you think you're sick of living here, the memory floods in. The morning light off the fire escapes. The nights in Bender Park blasting big pun tapes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Next Best Picture podcast, where we are talking with John M. Chu, the director of In the Heights. John, how are you and where are you? <laughs> What's going on? Uh, I am in uh, the Malibu Hills, uh-huh. uh, looking out over a very uh, foggy day, uh, waiting for this rain to drop here. <laughs> the trees need it. The trees need it. They do. And that sounds like a perfect day to rewatch the <laughs> blast of summer that is in the heights. Yes. <laughs> it was a very long wait for this film for everyone. For all of us to see it, I'm sure it felt even longer to you, having finished it so long ago. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you on a personal note, this was the first movie that I saw back in a theater in over a year and a half. And it was just a really, I can't think of a better movie to have that happen to. Thank you. Um, This is a real slice of cinematic magic, and it was wonderful to have throughout the summer and throughout the rest of the year, thanks to HBO Max. And (laughs) (laughs) I'm really excited to talk to you about this. Thank you, thank you. We had a blast shooting every inch of this movie. I mean, every day was we'd be crying, we'd be (laughs) celebrating. I mean, and and I just hoped that the camera we capture a little bit of this energy. So I'm really glad that you, you felt a little of that. Oh yeah. And well, I, I am actually speaking to you from Washington Heights. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> I remember when y'all were filming and the neighborhood was a buzz. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, no, no. <laughs> no, no. It was fantastic. I was far enough. I was far enough away that it, I was never like watching you guys or hearing you, but the whole neighborhood just was so excited when y'all were filming. And I can, that fun that you guys had translates to the screen. It's a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, we had people hanging out windows, celebrating with us. I mean, we were told by the city, you know, you have a certain Mm -hmm. uh, limit that your speakers can be so loud at, (laughs) certain DB. And um, so we were like, okay, so we followed it. But the music that people played out of their cars and out of their apartments was way louder. Our speakers, this is crazy. The streets really are made of music. Can confirm. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I'm sure that that sort of atmosphere must have helped you a bit in really capturing that feeling of summer in the city. Yeah, hundred percent. I mean, it was like because especially I'm not from Washington, Mm -hmm. so. I had to be introduced to this place by Lynn and Kiara, who are from there. And so I spent, even before we started shooting, months hanging out there. And um, and yeah, the spirit of music coming out of every corner, um, the sounds, the camaraderie, you know, they would yell at me as if I was their family member. <laughs> but they also invite me in for a beer at the same time. So 
I just loved it. I loved the um, the heart of that of that place, and uh, and and it definitely affects how we shot it. Uh, so yeah, it it is a wonderful community up here in the Heights. Um, mm-hmm. I'm curious. How did you become attached to this project? Was it something that you were looking to do? Mm-hmm. Did they come to you? How did how did that happen? So it was I was uh, just finishing Now You See Me Two, mm-hmm. and I was looking for something more personal, something that wasn't a sequel. Um, <laughs> and I had always remembered watching In the Heights on Broadway um, after shooting my first or during shooting my first movie, Step Up to the Streets. One of our actors, we have the salsa section in Step Up Two, mm-hmm. uh, and one of our actors, um, Luis Salgado, Salgado uh, he was in in the Heights, so he's like, "Come after we done shooting, come and watch this show." And so I had no idea if I watched it, and I was just so moved. Um, I'm from an immigrant community um, on the other side of the country, and they're not Latino; they're Chinese, uh, and uh, my parents have a Chinese restaurant. And so I know I knew what it felt like to be raised by your aunties and your uncles to have your abuela Claudia, which was my boo boo, um, to make food together, to share food together, to share strife together, to disagree with how what America is and who we are in America. And Lynn and Kiara's power was that it spoke to me so specifically. Uh, so anyway, that it always stuck with me, and I never thought I would have the opportunity to, to direct it, but. Uh, Scott Sanders, who's a producer on it, and Mara Jacobs uh, called me right after uh, uh, Now You See Me Too and uh, said that they had um, moved this project to a new studio and wondering if I would ever be interested. And I just very clearly saw the opportunity, now having done dance and music with Mm -hmm. different movies, saw very clearly how innovative a personal story with the language of music and dance in that neighborhood really could resonate and actually was needed in, in the movie space. And so I, I left at the chance. Uh, and then I had to meet with Lynn eventually uh, in New York. And this is right when he's doing Hamilton. So it ha- <laughs> Hamilton hasn't like hit the top yet, oh. but it's like, has a huge momentum. Um, so we sat down after, oh, right before a matinee one day, and I sort of pitched him my take wow. on what I thought in the hype could be. Wow. And after everyone involved said yes, uh-huh. how did you go about prepping to shoot this? Did you Were you involved at all in the screenplay and any edits in that? Or yeah. did you get that and say, was everything like you wanted to see in there? Um, no, so it had been in development for like 10 mm-hmm. years already by the time I joined. It was almost dead. <laughs> and um, it had gone to, of all places, uh, the Weinstein Company. And so I actually had to pitch to Harvey Weinstein. Oh. <laughs> and um, I'll never forget, he, he he called and said, and it was Christmas Eve. And he said, I need to have a meeting with you tomorrow. It was the night oh, before my Christmas God. Eve. I need to have a <laughs> meeting with you tomorrow at 8 a.m. Oh. Um, and I was like, but I don't, I what? And he's like, you know, trust me, you'll, you can tell this story for the rest of your life. <laughs> and I was like, all right. And I was out of town. So I took a flight in the morning, went there, met with him. And uh, anyway, so. Wow. And, and my take on this whole thing was that when you, in the script as it was, when they sang about, you know, 
being in a mansion or playing golf somewhere, the, the script actually took you to a golf place, uh, a, a golf course, it took you to an actual mansion. And to me, I was like, that's not, doesn't feel very real. It doesn't feel authentic to me about how someone would picture this. If you only know there are few blocks around you. Like I know as a child of an immigrant, my parents had context to the American dream that other people may not have had. Advertisements mm. were like a giant inspiration, uh, even though they're cheesy uh, insurance ad of a Chinese family owning a house to my parents. Well, it, that was like the goal. And so in my head, that, so I was like, we need to bring not their dream. We can't bring them out of their world into their dreams. We need to bring their dreams into their world. Mm. So if she's dreaming about being a fashion designer, we need to bring fabrics into and tumbling down the the buildings. Um, if, if if he's dreaming um, about bursting out of this uh, bodega, we need to have the dancers outside dancing and daring him to break through that window as he's yearning to be somewhere else. So that was what um, I sort of pitched them. And then, and, and so once everyone was on board, it was about like, how do you get, how do you do this? Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when Harvey went down um, and everything changed in the business. And we felt very free at that point. We felt like, all right, mm-hmm. so I worked with Kiara and we brought in Anthony Bregman, another producer, and we all got to work of like taking the script apart. Now that we had the freedom away from Harvey and his, uh, specific instinct yeah. um, of, of, of casting Shakira in every role. Um, we then uh, went on to uh, craft what this needed to be. And I had just had a child, um, a do- my first daughter. Oh. And so a lot of this was like, how do you pass on story? How do you turn this bodega uh, into a beach? But actually the beautiful thing, the reveal at the end is the beach is the bodega yeah. the bodega is way more interesting than the beach because it has story and history and they worked hard to build this place for their kids so uh that's sort of what we took and then and that's what we um we developed outside of the studio system and then went to studios and said who wants to do this and i just happened to have uh, done uh crazy rotations with uh with uh warner brothers so they um got on board with us and that's how we started the Oh, that's incredible. And you, as you said, you know, you have experience shooting a lot of dance numbers, musical numbers with the Step Up films. Yeah. And you also, um, I, if I'm right, co-created and directed the LXD with Christopher Scott. Yeah. So when yeah, you yeah. got, finally had the studio backing and everything, did you go to Chris and say, hey, do you want to do the In the Heights musical? <laughs> um, I've been talking to Chris. I mean, Chris has done everything that I've mm-hmm. done pretty much. And so uh, it was sort of a given. Even when I was like flirting around with the idea, I, we sat down and talked about what could you do within the Heights. And, and it was very exciting. We're like, this is, you know, this is the East Coast La La Land. Mm. Like take the language of what makes New York great. And let's like, put that on steroids and on and on display for the world because there was such spirit and truth to be told in that. And I, we hadn't felt like New York has New York dance specifically mm. uh, street dance, light feet, um, B-boys have not been shown and put on a pedestal the way other dance styles have been. And this was like the perfect way because in a way 
uh, Lynn had already done that with the words, yeah. had already done that with rap, had already done that with the music. Um, and Kiara had done that with the story. And so we could round out this trifecta of language in this movie very well. And so, yes, we, we got to work and we, uh, every piece we wanted to feel different than the next. And every piece we wanted to be specifically for that character and how they express themselves. And it doesn't, the magic doesn't just, uh, isn't just hinged to the dance, but it's to the environment in which they're dancing. So if that tunnel wants to glow multicolored, then that tunnel will glow multicolored because that's what it felt like for Abuela Claudia mm-hmm. to walk through her life with pride. Um, and so, uh, yeah, we, it, was, it was really fun to develop every single idea. That's a really good description. East Coast La La Land. I hadn't made that connection. <laughs> I hadn't made that connection, but you're absolutely that opening number. Now that you say that, it does feel a lot like the opening number from La La Land in terms of how it takes yeah. that very specific location and makes something musical out of it. Yeah. It's, it it's really great. Um, <laughs> I'm particularly interested in as a former dancer and choreographer myself in Mm. thinking about this relationship that you have with Christopher, especially in this, because there's so much of this movie that really has a feel for building the dynamics in the movie making to match the building dynamics that's happening in the dancing, which is taking that from the music. When you're working with Christopher on something like this, how closely do you work together to yeah. conceive of a dance number? Well, we uh, it sort of ebbs and flows. Mm. We give each other room, but at the same time, we're very close about what we're trying to say. What I love about Chris is it's not prescriptive for Chris. It's not like he has some vision and he wants to fulfill it. And he knows with me that I'm not like that either. That we go from story and character first, of course. But we really go uh, even deeper in terms of how what movement is what what feeling is this movement need to evoke um you know a lot of choreographers it's about moves or it's about like a dance move whereas he creates a team that has all sorts of styles and dance moves that we want but actually what who we're hiring and who chris is is a storyteller first and so if i and i put the script on the wall and, and we break down not by plot, but we plot by emotion. So this scene is yearning. Okay, so I bring in our costume designer, I bring in our production designer, I said, this moment is about yearning. What can you do as storytellers uh, in your craft that expresses yearning? Oh, the production designer is like, I can create this window that's all dusty, and you can only see through this little window where he is. So he's almost trapped inside. And the costume designer is like, okay, I'm going to be very simple so it's not distracting so you just look at his eyes and the shirt is going to match his eyes. And then the actor is like, I'm not going to move at all. I'm just going to look out and you're going to know everything by looking at my eyes. And then Alice, our cinematographer, is like, I'm going to push in on this and every inch is going to feel like a screw tightening. And Chris is like, and I'm going to do the opposite of what you guys are all saying. I'm going to create a lot of action outside so that it dares him to break through this window. And then I say, I'm, all that together is exactly what we want. Or, you know what, let's not go as fast on the move and let's just go very slowly. And I will make sure that when we're in the edit that we're not cutting away. And so it's a, it, is a, it is a complete, I love our process. Mm-hmm. It's not a normal process. 
it is about process and um and it's about telling stories that evoke feelings mm-hmm. um not about plot and so that's how i work with chris we will create concepts together when we first start like we'll be like all right i want uh paciency fey to be a big romantic idea of what it means to immigrate yeah. here but i want it to feel like this is, but it's but it's through her eyes it's how she survives to make it, even though there's tough things happening to her, she's seeing it as her, as her destiny. And so let's paint it that way. And I want to go inside and outside of these. Uh, I, at first, I wanted it to be on this big soundstage, like an old classic musical mm-hmm. soundstage, that the, the subway cars open up and we're in this soundstage, mm-hmm. like gorgeous and shiny. But what we found was like, when Chris started to rehearse it, was like, you know what? It's not, that's not what this is. When she sings it, when Olga sings this, you can't take your eyes away from her. You're not going to want to cut around her to other dancers. So every piece of choreography needs to work around her close-up. So then we ch- the, the whole thing changes. All right, everything's around her close-up. Now where is she walking? And then we're working with the cut, you know, all the different things that come in. So everyone works together, and um, they can change at any moment. Even yeah. an actor who says, I don't feel like I want to do a piece of dance here then we are all okay and, and not precious enough to say, okay, just sit there. And, and you take the, you take the baton for those two minutes. Mm. Um, and other times they're like, we trust you to take it. So. Yeah. God, I, I love hearing that because, you know, that's so, that's such a big key to musicals is that like these musicals numbers happen when the emotion is too strong to be contained inside and has to break out in some yeah. other way. Right. So I love that. That's how that's your jumping off point for all these scenes. And that makes so much sense. I'm so glad you mentioned yeah. Paciencia y Fe because that is <laughs> one of the most striking numbers of the film one of the more striking musical numbers of mm. any musical i think i've ever seen mm. <laughs> you sh- you did end up shooting that on location ish not on a sound stage yeah. right i remember reading somewhere that you had wanted to shoot in you'd wanted to shoot in the um the museum the transit museum yeah. right but they said <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, we did take some of their cars because some you can take some of their cars out. Mm. It's actually in a subway station. So we, but so the, some of those period uh, cars we loved, and so we we found another station and we parked those period cars in there, and, and a modern one as well. And we choreographed in and out of those those train cars live, basically, and so that they could they could do the whole number live like tomorrow um wow they it was so well executed on their part the dancers knew exactly where to go i mean we played it as if it was a walkthrough experience that we had an audience there you could literally walk with her through the whole number and we wanted the audience to go along with that and so um yeah all of that is basically in geographical real time i think we jumped one little car one car Mm -hmm. just to get us to a certain place faster but Everything else is um, is pretty darn in real time, and it was, uh, you know, there's so they had to do theatrical lighting inside. I don't know how many floors we're under. I think it's like three or four floors beneath mm-hmm. the ground. So it's musty. It smells. Um, who knows what's in those tracks? <laughs> and we're adding all this theatrical lighting that needs to be programmed. Oh gosh, that needs to have certain colors. What do they represent? So all of that. Um, 
had to be done there, down there. And we didn't have a lot of time. None of this movie had a lot of time. And, um, and so that was a lot. Chris and Ellis and our lighting designer and our gaffer all working together to, and costume designer, Mitchell mm. uh, had to uh, design these outfits that could change color just by the light changing color. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it was the whole thing. It, a lot. it all came together, and it's this beautiful journey that we get to go on with her as she travels home and literally travels home. It's yeah. it's really stunning. Um, yeah, yeah. We're almost out of time now, and I could talk to you about this movie for, God, hours. But <laughs> <laughs> before we end, I, I have to ask you, what do you want people to take away from this movie? What do you want them to take away from it now? Yeah. What do you want them to take away from it in... 20, 30, 50 years from now when they watch In the Heights? I just want them to feel the joy. You know, our movie doesn't have a villain. Our movie doesn't have violence. There's no gun. There's no knives. There's no drugs. This is about working people working hard for their families and taking care of each other. This is about dreams and what you want. And your dreams may feel small to other people, but they deserve the space and the respect that any other person's dreams are. And my dad raised us in a Chinese restaurant in the kitchen where he'd be sweaty and there'd be oil all over him. And my mom was out front and people would treat them terribly and ignore them. And they had no idea that they had kids and families that, that, they, were, that they were taking care of and that they were giving an amazing life that I could become a Hollywood director one day, that, I would, that it would inspire me so much by watching them that I would want to spread stories and tell more people about other people. And I hope that our movie makes you stop and pause when you see other people. Instead of being like, oh, I don't understand that, like, that, that you're curious about that food, that you want to try that food, that you love that music, that you want to go listen to more of that music, that you love that style of dance. You're going to ask your Latino friend <laughs> how to do that kind of salsa. I hope that it, it, it evokes curiosity in each other. And, uh, and that you just have fun with it because that's what, that's why I fell in love with movies. That's why I fell in love with this project, even on stage. And now that it's on film, that it can last, uh, for, for generations. So, um, that's what I hope people get, get away from it. Well, I can't think of a better note to end on than that. So <laughs> thank you so much for speaking with us today, John, and good luck on your next endeavor. May you have many more movie musicals for us in the future. <laughs> Thank you. I got I got Wicked next, so get ready. Here's hoping. <laughs> We're looking forward to it. <laughs> yes. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. It's a story of a block that was disappearing once upon a time in a faraway land called Washington Heights. Who's gonna notice we're going? Say it so it doesn't disappear. Washington Heights! Look who's home! Bad changes happening on the block since you've been at school. When it came to dreams, we had to keep scraping by. Ice cold piragua. Silly when we get into these crazy hypotheticals. You really want some bread, then go ahead, create a set of goals. I pick a business school and pay the entrance fee. And maybe if you're lucky, you'll stay friends with me. They used to say, you work hard, you live by the rules, the things will come, and those things will heal you. I'm not gonna sit here and give you some fairy tale. Ignore anyone who doubts you. Because this place, this is it. I just want to see the whole world through her eyes. 
Let's go. Let's show them who we are. Today's all we got, so we cannot stop. This is our block. This is the moment where you do better than me. Because you can see a future that I can. Sonny, you're late. You know you love me? You know, I, I mentioned earlier that I, uh, I, you know, John, I know your work from some bigger blockbusters uh, like Godzilla versus Kong and Lewis, um, you had the really good work in Hereditary and especially in I'm Thinking of Ending Things, right? Mm, yes. Enjoyed that film. So how did you both end up on a musical? <laughs> well, I have I've probably done through my career probably about six other musicals of one form or another. Um, Notorious about Biggie Smalls. And there was a, a film called Cadillac Records. Uh, there have been a bunch of others. So I've had experience doing, you know, a bunch of different musicals over a period of time. And one of the producers of In the Heights, who I've done a bunch of musicals with, is kind of how I got steered to get and meet John Chu. Uh, so that was really kind of what was my past experience with this producer and having done musicals with him before. And then that kind of brought me into this uh, realm. I had also worked on... Somebody help me out here. Greatest, the greatest, greatest showman. showman. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just, 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 a well, old. just a little one. Yeah. <laughs> so. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Well, I was going to say, I have a, I've known John, too, since we met back in 2012 on G.I. Joe, and so he's kind of cycled through, up, you know, kind of upwardly mobile bunch of movies through the Justin Bieber stuff. And then now you see me. And then we did uh, Crazy Rich Asians. And 
all along the way, um, you know, I knew his proclivity to music and dance and stuff. And so when um, we were doing Crazy Rich, he, he had been talking about, you know, in the Heights. And I just thought, my God, this is an absolutely perfect fit. And like, I couldn't think of a better uh, fit um, than John to do that. And then, yeah, it went out to New York and I was heartbroken. <laughs> I've been talking to John and Meyer and we're like, how on earth is this going to work? Are we able to somehow, uh, you know, get Warner to, to spring for uh, some travel to get me up to New York and it didn't work. And I just kind of had given a hope, up hope on it. And, and then COVID hit. And that just changed all the schedules and changed everything. And um, John called. Thank God for COVID. Uh, yeah, right. It's one of these weird silver linings, but it ended up coming back to Los Angeles. And yeah, so as fate would have it, uh, Lou and I would end up working together on, on stage six at Warner Brothers in a beautiful stage. That's, a, that's, that's my trajectory with it. Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, it's, it's wonderful you both ended up on it. It's a beautifully sounding film. So obviously there, there's this whole theme in the film that is, as Usnavi says, you know, the streets are made of music, especially in Washington Heights, you know, especially given some of the COVID constraints. Tell me a little bit about like pulling those sounds from the real Washington Heights and incorporating them into the film. And then also making sure that while those sounds are there and engage with the music tracks, that they don't really distract from the music, which is, of course, the main reason people go to the movie. Pretty much what you're saying is what we were contending with on a pretty much daily basis. We did, you know, in the initial prep, we did record a lot of sounds and a lot of elements in Washington Heights to use specifically, but also to use as templates. You know, the problem with recording up in Washington Heights is there's just a tremendous amount of music. There's always somebody riding on a bicycle with a giant boombox in the back of it or some car with some you know piece of music blaring out of it. It's like constant. So you know, to just record up there, you can't really use all that material because there's all this other material that's part of it that you just legally can't use. So a lot of the times we did recording and, and then would use that, those recordings kind of as templates as things to pull and, and build upon. But at the same time, there were, was a point where I think we had a lot of those elements a lot more present in the film. And it did become, I wouldn't say controversial, but it, you know, it became an issue between breathing the life of the city into the movie and having it feel like we're in those places, but also having that balance to not get in the way of the music, of the singing, of what was going on. And John, who was dealing with all of those effects and stuff, I think probably remixed them all five or six times <laughs> up and down. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, I mean, the the, the, the real uh, saving grace in a lot of that was just uh, how specific John and, and Myron were with what they wanted to hear and when and making those those choices. And a lot of that stuff Lou had worked through um, in the temps and, and the prior uh, versions of the movie. So, um there was a good template, you know, in place by the time we got to the final. But yeah, a lot of it was just, uh, you know, like Lou was saying, we went through the movie. I don't know how many times <laughs> between. When, but it also, you know, we originally the more we would play the mix yeah. for everybody, you know. And again, we're dealing with doing a mix through COVID. So really, in the mix environment that we were, John and I were working, there was really only 
most of the time, just John Chu, the director. So it's really just the three of us. And Myron was there for a while, the picture editor. Um, but really for a long time, it was me, John and John. And then we would play the film for studio executives that would come, but we, again, were very limited to how many people could be there. And then we would beam it out and, and to a lot of the creatives like Lynn and the composers and Alex and, and, and Bill in New York. Um, and then there would be about another 10 or 15 people actually online listening to the mix while we were playing it back. So, you know, everybody was listening to it in a very different environment that when everybody started giving their notes, there was all these contradictions in some respect about, mm. you know, there's too much effects, there's not enough effects. And it really took a while working in that manner for us to kind of, and John especially, to, to really start, you know, zeroing in on what the balance was, you know, what the balance of Foley was, what the balance of backgrounds how loud the vocals were compared to the music. Um, so really getting that balance wasn't easy, especially in that type of working situation. So let me ask you this. Um, I believe the production had ended by the time, and including post had ended by the time that Warner announced that everything would be going to HBO Max. But, Knowing that, did that impact in itself how you guys approached the mix, knowing that a lot of people wouldn't hear it in theaters and might listen to it at home instead? I mean, it sounds like a lot of the notes were coming for people who were already watching it in comparable environments. Yeah, I mean, they were all listening to it in very good environments, all the all the creative people. But I think at the time that we were finishing, I, I think it was still meant to be released only in theaters first. Yeah. You know, I think, I, I, John, am I wrong with that? I don't remember. I, I think no, it was, we yeah, were finished, no, there was we no finished talk in October. About, I mean, the, yeah, there was the talk that like, you know, how is it and when is it going to get released? And what if, you know, I, I know that that was a concern at the time. It was like, well, what if this just doesn't see a theater and it just goes to HBO Max? I mean, there's just all these kind of really um, ambiguous types of uh, potentials. And I remember that being, uh, you know, we finished the theatrical and, but um, when we were doing the near field and we were doing the, the home theater mix, you know, John was very much adamant about being uh, there and making sure that that was going to be what, what it needed to be. Because, you know, a lot of times that's the mix that is forever. <laughs> you know, that's the one that right. people yeah. see over and over again. And so we were, we were all really sensitive to that, making sure that that was going to as best as it could. Uh, we didn't, we didn't get the, you know, the four weeks on a dub stage to do the, home theater mix you know that was after the theatrical was done but i think it's, but i still think at the time that john was very adamant that and i think lynn also was that this was going to be an initial theatrical release again this was october right um yeah and it was going to be theatrical and then you know streaming whenever after that and i think as time went on and i think the the the, the release date was changed and I think, you know, as the clock was ticking, I think it was finally, and I, I think things were changing also at, over at Warner Brothers. I think it finally was like, all right, you know, we got to get this out. And I think that's when it was decided that it will get released both theatrically and uh, HBO Max simultaneously. So let me ask you this. I mean, it sounds, you mentioned earlier that when you were, visiting Washington Heights, it was difficult to actually pull a lot of audio from there. 
Um, how about just in general, when recording a lot of the music, how much was sung on set? How much was re-recorded externally? And uh, to the extent it wasn't, how did you avoid making the music sound, for lack of a better term, disembodied? Well, you know what? If I hear that word one more time in my life, disembodied, I'm going <laughs> to kill myself. Because literally that was what was always talked about. It's like, ah, oh, it's feeling too disembodied. So, you know, initially they did these recordings of the actors singing the songs, which they would play back on set. And a bunch of takes that they would film, they would film the actors singing to this playback track. And then the actors would get really comfortable doing the performance and singing. And then John would be like, all right, let's do one live. And then they would record a bunch of the performances on set, recording the actors live. So now we have the initial recordings. We have live set recordings. And then they actually did another recording after the shooting. Uh, they went back into a studio and <clears throat> they would uh, record the actors again. And then the music editors, uh, Jim and Jen, would kind of piece together the songs on how John and Myron wanted them to be vocally. And a lot of the times the vocals were from set and it was almost like a, a jigsaw puzzle because they were really looking for the best emotional performance of the vocals. So they would build these songs and some of the songs are full, you know, from production, uh, champagne, which is a song between Usnavi and Vanessa that was 100% sung, you know, in one pass. Oh, wow. Um, and it's live. A song like Benny and the Dispatch is really a combination of a lot of live singing and then studio singing. So it really was that they, they really spent a significant amount of time getting the performances from either recording the post recordings or the live set recordings. That was the emotion and the character that they wanted for that song. And then my job is to try to make it all sound kind of consistent and put it in the space and not make it feel disembodied, <clears throat> which was a big combination of how the vocals were mixed, um, how the music was mixed, how John was mixing the backgrounds and the effects and the Foley to keep it, you know, real. And that was the big thing from John is John Chu didn't want the movie to be a music video. Right. You know, he was very adamant that he wanted this to be like these people were singing their lives. You know, they're singing these songs, which was almost the dialogue for the movie. So much of it is that he just wanted it to be really real, that these people are in, you know, in situ, in that environment, singing these songs. And, you know, and, and that word disembodied was used a lot. <laughs> Sorry to trigger you by bringing it back. Yeah, you did. I'm twitching like big time over here. <laughs> but, um. You know, really, it's, it's you know, if anything, if the vocals were just too loud at one point, you know, there's one thing that I always remembered, and every time it goes, every time I've seen it, I I just think about it. It's like when Benny is leaving the bodega just before Yusnavi has his, his moment where he sings into the glass, you know, Benny grabs a bag from the counter turns away from camera, looks at the door, walks to the door, and then looks back at Usnavi. 
And what I was doing at that point is I was writing this reverb to put him in the room a little more. And then as he turned back to the camera, take a little bit of that off. So he sounded a little bit closer to us. And it just gave it a feel of, well, that, that was probably the way it would have sound if he was really singing. Now that was a point where it was a recording. So yeah, yeah that was, that was John and I's, John Marquez and I's, you know, biggest chore through the whole film was to keep it as real as possible until it wasn't real until we were like with, with, um, what's the song? Subjective part, you know, and it's like John would want to just kind of like, let's, let's bring some effects in here, but we don't need to focus on realism. Now it's just about communicating the power and the energy of the moment. And, right. Um, <clears throat> what's yeah. the song down in the subway? Um, it's, uh, uh, Thank you. We're talking about that one. Yeah. That song. So that song goes almost into full on kind of fantasy. Mm-hmm. And and John really did a, a significant amount of work with the effects and the subway train and stuff. And now we're you know we're completely out of reality at that point. You know, so the movie has and the same thing with the song, um, not when you're home, when they're jump walking up the building. You know, so so much of the oh, film is based down. in the reality of the movie, and then some of it goes into fantasy at the same time. Yeah, it's a really cool balance, and it's it's very fun to listen to. Um, I need to see it again uh, before it leaves theaters, just to make sure I appreciate all this. We're about out of time, but before I go, it's such a different experience to see in a theater. I'm just saying, you got to see it in a theater. I think everybody does. I I completely agree. You know, I, I musicals are made for that environment, so and, you know, it's I, I'm sure you feel the same way, given how you mixed it for that, you know that that environment. What are you both working on next? I know you just finished the Tomorrow War, but any other projects? Yeah, I just um, did a little touch up on uh, this uh, Michael Bay movie called Ambulance, and I have a uh, a, a, a DC comic property that I'll be working on starting in the fall that I'm not I'm supposed to keep my lips shut on that one. Oh. That'll be a good one to take me all, all through next year. But, yeah, like. Yeah. Half the sound community is working on Ambulance, right? I mean, I, there's so many names on there, I, <laughs> right? Like Eric Adol, um, the, yeah. the guy who did Blade Miz. Yeah, it's, it's Michael Bay, and then Eric and, and Ethan. Those, that's he's their guy, and, and I've been working with Eric and Ethan for for years now, and so, um, and the Michael Bay movies are always a total blast, but um, they can get pretty gnarly, you know, when you start to get into the final mix, like. I got off of the Tomorrow War, which was a great run and really fun, but a lot of work. And you know, ambulance came up, and I was like, I can, I can help for a couple of weeks at the, <laughs> at the beginning when it's when it's a little more peaceful. But I'm I'm right now I'm, I'm talking to you. I'm I'm out in the Midwest visiting family, and so we 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 pulled out for a couple of months just to do some personal time and and travel. And so I'm, I'm planning on taking time off until I get back in the fall to start up on the DC project. Well, it sounds like you've earned it. <laughs> I'm trying to think of well, what I'm doing next. Oh, what aren't you next doing thing I'm now? doing is actually a TV show, Russian Doll. Oh, I'm excited for another season of that. That's great. Season two of that. That's starting up pretty soon. And then I think after that, I'm working on a Lionsgate, Lionsgate feature called Shotgun Wedding uh, with Jennifer Lopez. Oh, yeah. I'm intrigued by that one. Yeah, I mean, it's great script, and, and um, everything I've seen so far has been really quite fantastic. So that's like a action 
comedy. It should be a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to it. Well, thank you guys so much for talking. And uh, I hope more people get the chance to hear your wonderful work in theaters while they still can and support this great movie. So, but uh, I'm looking forward to, uh, I'll have to check out the Tomorrow War and make sure I uh, hear some of that work in there too. And uh, me too. I'm going to go watch it tonight, actually. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. All right. All right. Thanks, Will. Enjoy yourselves. Bye. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to Dan Baer's interview with John M. Chu, the director of In the Heights, and Will Mavity's interview with the sound team, Louis Goldstein and John Marquise, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. In the Heights is currently available to stream on HBO Max, available to rent, purchase, watch at home, and is available for your consideration in all categories for this year's award season. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you will get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we shall see you all next time. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.